Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations about pop culture, parenting, and identity politics, all from a multicultural perspective. I'm your host, Lori Tharps, and I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and an all-around diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because we have a lot to talk about. On episode seven of the podcast, I'm joined by Jillian Scott Ward, a clinical psychologist and the filmmaker behind the 2016 documentary, Back to Natural. Back to Natural is a film about the natural hair movement in Black communities around the world. In addition to exploring the rich history and culture of Black hair, Back to Natural exposes the impact the oppression of Black hair has on identity, relationships, health, and overall well-being. Jillian says she made the film to, quote, inspire reflection, compassion, and healing of racial trauma globally. Fun fact, I actually appear in the film as an expert because I wrote the book Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, and I've spent the last 20 years writing and talking about all things black hair. So I'm really excited to talk to someone else who has not only done the research, but has had the opportunity to talk to Black people all over the world about their personal relationships with their hair, about Black hair politics, and the continuing global oppression of our crowning glory. But before we get to that conversation, you know we have to take a break for a Melting Pot Minute. This Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by Black Hair. Black Hair. If it's not yours, don't touch it. Black Hair. Hello, Melting Pot community. If you're listening to this episode in real time, then it's February 2019. We're right in the middle of Black History Month. And since we're going to be talking about Black Hair on this episode, I figured I'd share a little bit of Black Hair history. Raise your hand if you think you know the name of a Black female self-made millionaire who made her fortune in the hair business in the early 20th century. Now put your hand down if you were going to say Madam C.J. Walker. I want to tell you about another self-made millionaire named Annie Malone. Annie Minerva Turnbull Malone was born in 1869. She was the 10th of 11 children. In the late 1890s, Annie, who reportedly had a background in chemistry, began to mix up hair products for the Black women in her community. They were all complaining of common problems like patchy baldness and hair breakage. By 1900, Malone had created a product called Wonderful Hair Grower, and it was like a miracle cure. She began selling it door-to-door in her small town in Illinois. By 1902, at the age of 33, Malone moved her growing business to St. Louis, where the company flourished. She called her company Poro, which is a West African word which means devotional society. Malone wasn't just content to sell her wonderful hair grower and grow rich. She started to train other Black women as sales associates and stylists. Then they could go and sell Poro products and become Poro agents and earn a living wage. This was preferable to being relegated to domestic work and working for white people. If you're thinking that selling Poro products sounds a lot like selling Avon products, you're absolutely right. And it's probable that Annie Malone got the idea from the Avon company, which launched in 1886 under the name the California Perfume Company. But there's more to this story. Annie Turnbull Malone wasn't just a brilliant entrepreneur. She set up schools where after completing the nine-month training, graduates could open an official Poral hair salon themselves. And soon, Poral salons were being opened and Poral products were being sold all across the country in the Caribbean and Latin America. 
Annie Turnbull Malone also created the Poro College, which was a massive million-dollar complex in St. Louis that housed her manufacturing plant, sales operations, a gymnasium, chapel, and performance space. The Poro College was often used as a community center for the Black residents of St. Louis, who were often turned away from white-only establishments. Malone was known for her generous philanthropy and support of Black causes. She even founded an orphanage. There's one famous woman that probably everyone knows who started her career as a Poro agent before branching off on her own entrepreneurial escapades, and her name was Sarah Breedlove. But most people know her as Madam C.J. Walker. Marinate on that for a minute. Madam C.J. Walker got her start working for Annie Turnbull Malone. So why isn't Annie Turnbull Malone as famous and well-known as her student, Madam C.J. Walker? Why isn't there a movie in the works about her life story like Walker's? Or why isn't there a memorial stamp with her face on it? Sadly, it's because of a man. Annie Turnbull Malone married a man who would later divorce her, but not before he completely sabotaged her business and left her finances in complete disarray. She died in 1957, almost penniless, after a handful of very public scandals, including being forced to declare bankruptcy. So this is the story of Annie Turnbull Malone entrepreneur, philanthropist, marketing genius, and black hair hero. Remember her name and remember her legacy during Black History Month and every month. Now let's get back to our conversation about black hair with Jillian Scott Ward. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Jillian. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So it's so exciting for me to be on this side of the microphone talking about black hair, talking to someone who I get to interview about black hair. But before we talk about the film, Back to Natural, I want to talk a little bit about you and your background. I know Back to Natural is your first film. So what were you doing professionally before embarking on this journey? So before starting the film, I was a clinical psychologist. I was specializing in young adult development. I had been working in university mental health for several years and really focusing on well-being and wellness of young adults. At the time of the filming, were you at Barnard University? I was. So you're working at Barnard as a psychologist. What made you decide to make a film about natural hair? That seems like kind of a crazy jump. It was a crazy jump. I guess that is kind of my personality to just be curious about something and have no fear, not really think about the repercussions and just try it. I had been thinking about going natural probably since I was like 18. Wait, I'm going to pause you right there because you never know who's listening. What do you mean when you say you were thinking about going natural? Okay. I had been using chemicals to straighten my normally kinky hair since I was around eight or nine. Obviously, that was not a conscious choice on my part. It was something that my mother had chosen to do for me and my sisters culturally. It was a normal part of the culture. You know, when you became a certain age, for her, I think doing my kinky hair was challenging for her because she had her hair chemically straightened and so didn't really have the skills to know what to do with naturally kinky curly hair. And so I had this chemical process done to me at that early age and I had just continued it every six to eight weeks until I went natural, which was, I guess, in my 30s. And what was that experience like for you to go from 
almost 30 years of wearing your hair straight. How was that process for you? Did you cut your own hair off or what was that journey like for you? You know, it depends on when you think about when you start the journey. I mean, if I was thinking about it really since I was 18 and didn't do it until I was my 30s, that's a really long time. It wasn't even a conscious, I'm not doing this because. I didn't have the skills. I didn't know what to do. And so I just kept putting it off until I realized that there, there was something there psychologically. At some point, it's not just, I don't know how to do it, so I'm not going to take this leap and learn how, right? Because there's lots of things I don't know how to do that I took the leap to do. I didn't know how to be a therapist and I went to graduate school, right? You know, I didn't know how to make a movie and I did it anyway. So my personality is not to avoid learning things. And so after doing some reflection, I was like, there's something deeper. Is it emotional? Is it societal? And I think that not knowing was really the push for me to do a documentary because I was seeing my students struggling with this issue. And I was struggling with this issue. And the big thing about healers is we can't help people heal in areas that we are not healed. And so I knew that I needed to explore and figure out what was going on. And it was bigger than me. So what came first? You going natural or you starting the film? Or were these two things happening simultaneously? So they happened simultaneously. I went and got a camera and a Mac and some video software so I could edit. And then I got some braids, some braided extensions, because my idea was there's a couple ways that you can sort of end the process of chemically relaxing your hair, because once the ends are chemically relaxed, they don't revert. You basically have to either grow it out or cut it all off. And so the process of cutting it all off is called the big chop, where you just cut off all your hair and you start fresh. And that seemed really scary to me. The idea of what it would mean for my femininity and for how I presented myself and my gender, it seemed like such a huge leap. So my idea was that I was going to get these braids and I was going to slowly kind of grow out my natural hair and through the growing out kind of learn to manage my natural hair. And then I went on vacation and I swam in the ocean like every day for a week. And I came home and I tried to take out the braids and my hair was just one matted mess. I was crying. I didn't know what to do. My husband was trying to film this. I was furious and like crying and screaming and stop. And he's like, but it's for the movie. And I'm like, no, (laughs) we can't do this. Um, It was a mess. And I didn't sleep the whole night and I called my hairdresser the morning and I was like, I got to come in. You got to help me. And I actually brought my camera and I took off this scarf and she looked at my hair. She's like, I've never seen anything this horrible in my entire life. Like, what did you do? (laughs) Which is like not what you want to hear. Like you never in an emergency situation, never want the person helping you to be like, I literally have never seen anything this bad. No, definitely. You do not want to hear that. Mm mm. Yeah, no, it was bad. And she cut it off. And so that was that was my big chop. Under duress. Under duress. But I was so sleep deprived and just emotionally drained from crying for so long that it was actually a smooth transition after that. Like after all of that, it was just like I had accepted it. You know, like when you're sleep deprived and you're just like, there's nothing I could do. Like I need to accept reality. This is what's happening. I wanted to go natural anyway. 
And it was a push. And this, yeah, this just forced you to kind of jump in feet first and not take the gradual approach that you had intended to do. Exactly. How would you define natural hair? That is actually really controversial. I mean, I think we could easily say natural hair is hair that has not been chemically relaxed. But I'm a part of a lot of natural hair groups on Facebook. And some people are like, well, does that mean that you can't color your hair? And like, do you get kicked out of sort of the natural scene who's all about freedom if you color your hair? So I'm going to go and say that natural hair is hair that is not chemically strained. But you can have colored hair. That's what I'm going to say. Okay. I know a lot of people, you know, they get up in arms about what's natural, what's not natural. Um, You know, if you're wearing a weave, is that natural? I try not to get caught up in people's definitions of what is officially natural or not. I personally think if your hair is not chemically straightened, your hair is natural. But what are some of the hairstyles that fall under the natural category that most people would say are natural styles? Locks are a natural style, an afro, kind of braided styles. You know, I think all of these styles are the most popular kind of natural style. Certainly, they're the styles that are the most discriminated against and show up the most in grooming standards. Uh, so I would say that those those are the natural styles. Now, when we talk about Black hair being oppressed historically, what do you mean by that? I mean, you know, from the very beginning, when you think about what happens to people when colonizers come in, you know, I always go back to connecting different oppressed people's stories. And I always go back to indigenous peoples and how what their hair meant, sort of it's not, you know, a monolith and there's different tribes and different hair styles had different meanings. But I think universally, colonizers understood that the hair meant something, signaled something because there was different styles. And so they shaved their head and they didn't allow them to connect culturally to their hair anymore. And similarly, that was done to black people, right? One of the first things that you would do when you colonize black people was you would shave their head because then you wouldn't know who these people were. You couldn't identify them. Right. And so, you know, that's kind of historically where it comes from. And then very similarly, you see the same kinds of things happening with grooming standards where you cannot go to school with styles that are appropriate for your hair's texture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't go to work in styles that are appropriate to your hair's texture because it's thought to be unprofessional. And so the fact that a dominant group could look at Black people and tell them that their bodies in its natural state and what they do to maintain those bodies historically is inappropriate to participate in society, that that is discrimination. Because then that forces people to sort of internalize a belief system where they're rejecting parts of themselves, which has a really deep implications on their psychology. It has implications when they're using chemicals to obtain a look that's not natural for them, that has real serious health implications. And then you have the research that we have about what happens when you don't feel positively about your racial identity and how that impacts your ability to succeed in school and work. So it's a really big deal. It's not superficial. And I think that we're coming to a precipice right now where people are no longer accepting this 
globally and really fighting back. A lot of times people think that these issues of identity and self-acceptance and racial identity, that these are female issues. And it's not. The oppression of Black hair is not something that only affects Black women because Black men, newsflash, have Black hair. (laughs) And their experience with the same level of discrimination, whether it's in the workplace or historically, has been the same. You know, this talk of Black hair being animalistic, Black hair being uncivilized, unsophisticated, dirty, unkempt, all of these negative attributes that have been connected with Black hair, you know, I've also been laid at the feet of Black men as well. And I like that in the film, you do talk to many men who can share with you their same levels of racial awakening around their hair issues and how their different experiences going from, you know, keeping their hair really short and out of the way to growing locks, for example, and feeling some kind of way about their hair or feeling that, I know you showed the, um, airline host in Air France France, who had dreadlocks (laughs) and actually put a wig on every day to go to work because Air France said that he was not allowed to come to work with his dreadlocks, even though his dreadlocks were short and very neat. And that wig looked ridiculous, but that was policy, right? So we're not talking about an oppression of women or an oppression of beauty. This goes far beyond that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It's definitely... A very big deal. Research for the film took you to Paris and took you to South Africa. Did you see a similar, is it a similar story of the oppression of Black hair from people in France, for example, and South Africa? It's so interesting because we are probably in one of the worst times racially in America in my personal lifetime. And somehow still we have more privilege than what I see existing in South Africa or France, which is kind of crazy for me to think about. I don't know if that's what everybody else would say, but definitely going to South Africa and seeing what people still have to endure was very, I mean, apartheid ended in 94. Like that was yesterday. You know what I mean? Like that was such and you know, and I learned, you know, about the pencil test where you put the pencil in the hair and if it stayed, you would have literally less rights. Because you were black. If you did not pass the pencil test, if the pencil stayed in your hair, you were officially black, which meant you had much less rights than if you were colored, for example, because the pencil would fall to the floor. Right, but you could game the test, right, by doing something to your hair, by like chemically straightening it or something like that. And so people had to make these conscious choices, right, for themselves and their families about like, I will shed my blackness in whatever ways that I can to do things to get basic rights. And so what you have to give away, which is your authenticity and your strength to just survive in society, obviously is very upsetting. And then there was a scene, you know, we are in a hair salon in Bagneux, which is right outside of Paris. And one of the patrons basically said, you know, If you were colonized by the British, you had more rights than if you were colonized by the French. And like had strong feelings about it, like looking at me, you know, not to start something, but like you have no idea what it's like to have been colonized by the French. Believe you me. Right. And she was saying that because I remember that line she said, like, in France, you're just French. Like, you have to be French. 
I mean, I took her comment to mean in the United States, Black Americans have a very distinct cultural group. Like we belong to the group of Black America, right? And we have a distinct culture and community. Whereas in France, and I think this is very similar in England as well, because they don't really buy into racial categories. Everybody's just French and everybody's just British, but they're not really. You can't just be French if you are, you know, from Senegal, right? You're not. So it's an impossible standard and there's no way to celebrate your blackness because that would mean you're trying not to be French and that's not allowed. So I totally got that. And um, I think that that's why it's so gratifying to take, you know, hair story, to take back to natural to other countries, because even though, like you said, we're not doing so well here in the United States right now, this moment doesn't feel like a high moment for racial relations or anything like that. But when you go out of the United States and realize that in some countries, the idea that you could celebrate your natural hair in its natural state and wear it freely, that is revolutionary to a lot of people. I know I was speaking to an activist from the Dominican Republic, and she was saying when she would wear her natural hair in the streets, people would throw combs at her. I mean, you couldn't literally walk the streets without being accosted simply for wearing your natural hair out. So, um, so you had this extraordinary experience of going natural where it was almost thrust upon you and you're simultaneously beginning to make this movie. But I want to take a little bit of a step back. What was your goal with making a movie about going natural? I mean, the joke for psychologists when they're writing their dissertation and where they're doing the research is all their research is me search, right? It's like, they want to understand something and they kind of jump in to understand it. And that's what it was. I didn't have an end goal. Like, how would I think that I had, like, that I was going to actually make a movie that was going to, like, travel the world as a psychologist? I had no idea. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about the impact. Because when you hear the origins, like, this was me-search. I love that term. And it has, in fact, turned into, like, a global phenomenon. Talk a little bit about finishing the film and then seeing the impact that it's had. It's so interesting because... I had started working on the film in about 2013, right? So that tells you how long I've been working on the film. And probably 2016, I started to send different versions of the film to film festivals while still working on the film. So if I wasn't getting accepted to festivals, I was still kind of recutting and figuring out what it needed to look like in order to be something that people wanted to see. And I sort of landed one day from going to South Africa. My cousin had gone to South Africa for a few months to do some work. And I decided to visit her. And while I was there, people ended up telling me, you know what? I know the people who started the natural hair movement in South Africa. You need to meet with them. So when I went out there, I did some interviews. I landed back in the States. And the minute I landed back in the States, I got an email from my producer, my executive producer, Marquis Smalls. And he said, did you get an email from Martha's Vineyard, uh, African-American Film Festival? I said, no. He said, you got in. I was like, what do you mean I got in? He's like, you got into the festival. And I was so shocked. First of all, I didn't even really think the film was fully done, right? I had just... <laughs> I had just filmed some more. I planned to like recut the whole thing. And he's like, it's a couple months. 
I was like, I have new footage. He's like, figure it out. We're going to your first film festival. Wow. So I landed at like, I don't know, four o'clock in the morning, downloaded the media, made a few cuts, put it in. And like, you know, within a week I had a new cut ready. And that was the start of when we just started traveling. People started to hear about the film. We started to get into festivals all over the world. Um, And that's when I realized, oh, we have something that resonates with people. Yeah. I mean, I was just looking at all of the places the film has been, London, Ghana, all over the Caribbean, all over the United States. Obviously, you were in Paris filming in South Africa. What do you think is really making people excited about this film? What do you think is resonating with people? When I think about what my experience was traveling around the world and like how, like sometimes like pain and beauty kind of go hand in hand and talking to these people who they look like me, but they speak different languages and they have different accents, but their stories are so similar. And black people, period, right? People of color in general, but black people, period, are not used to seeing their authentic experiences represented in film. And to have such an intimate experience, like our relationship to our hair, not only seen in film, but sort of reflected in all these people around the world is really powerful. And I think to have feelings of discrimination make us feel so alone and isolated a lot of the times, any time we can feel seen and validated, I think is really powerful for Black people. And I think that's what I think people are responding to is sort of being seen. Yeah, I think that's absolutely what it is. And I feel that that's how I, when I wrote Hair Story, and even when I wrote my book about colorism, Same Family, Different Colors, I was just amazed at how much people wanted to talk to me about these issues, these very personal identity issues. But the response was always, no one's ever asked me before. Nobody has ever let me talk about these things before. So I think you're so absolutely right. It's validation that you're not crazy. It's validation that you're not alone. I'm curious if your audiences are mostly Black audiences or have you seen your audience also been more multiracial or diverse? And if so, what's been that response? No, the the audience is always multiracial. We just came back from the Barbados Independent Film Festival And actually, the woman who first saw my film and brought it was a white woman. And, you know, I've been working with a lot of different human rights, social justice coalitions now. And the response I see from non-Black people is equally, if not more powerful than Black people, because they realize that there's this whole world of things happening that they're not aware of, right? And so now they see the world differently and they look at people's hair differently and they have a different understanding. I think it brings people together, actually. You know, that's my favorite thing because this is my American melting pot. (laughs) That's like my whole goal is to bring people together over these issues that have historically kept us divided. What are some of the like learnings you gleaned about black hair in doing the film yourself? Maybe things that you didn't know or the things that maybe you think are the most startling about how significant black hair is in defining a person's identity and or creating a sense of oppression and or struggle? I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. Um, how would I know? <laughs> like, 
you know, that's not something that we spoke about. My parents were immigrants. Immigrants from where? From the West Indies. My mother is from Jamaica. My father is from Karakou, which is a small island in Grenada. It's just not something that we spoke about. We were focused on how to be successful and thrive in an environment that was aggressive towards us. You know, that's not something that we spoke about. And I read your book early on in the process, and I was just kind of floored. Like, what do you mean that your hairstyle would indicate everything about you that you could tell who a person was from their hairstyle? Like, that's powerful. That the person who did hair in the community had sort of like a spiritual role in the community. That the hair was connected to to the divine. I had no idea. I felt like I had the potential to have this much deeper relationship with my body in this way that I didn't have. Yeah, I completely understand what you're saying. I mean, when I did the research for Hair Story, the first thing I did was cut my relaxed hair off because I felt like I had literally been oppressing my own hair and I wanted to feel this powerful substance that grew out of my head. It was like being reconnected with my spirit through my hair. And that sounds so hyperbolic. It sounds so overblown. But I know from talking to people about their hair, about traveling with hair story, that that's the kind of response you get. You, I literally feel like I'm giving people Jesus. I'm giving them the religion. I'm opening them to an awareness of self that they'd never heard before. But also there's a level of like sadness because they realize that this has been done to them. This is not accidental, that there was a very systematic oppression of black hair. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of like who you spoke to and like what people will learn in the film? People are going to learn a lot. I just wanted to like respond to the idea that it sounds hyperbolic, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that that is so interesting because I think the things that we think are powerful, we've been told are meaningless. And then we almost have to feel embarrassed by having a powerful experience, like, like our connection to our bodies or our hair or the earth or plants or animals. You know what I mean? It's like, these are things that are actually really central to lots of different cultures. And so like, of course, it's not hyperbolic, like it's so real and authentic, but we've been taught that it isn't. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of what people are going to learn, I think everyone takes away something really, really different. And people are going to learn what they need to learn at the time that they watch that film. And we're still finishing up some stuff for the film right now. And one of the great things that my husband said to me, like just this weekend, as we're like watching the film, like literally for the 4,000th time, is like, this is, he's like, this is such a watchable film. Cause I'm always like, oh, I'm sorry, babe, we gotta watch this again. And he's like, this is so watchable. Like every time, like he's like laughing at the funny parts and like <laughs> shaking his head. And it's just like, you've seen this so many times. He's like, you know, it's okay. Every time he gets something different and I get something different and I made the film. I'm amazed that we're having this conversation in 2019 and we'll probably still be having this conversation in 2020 because black hair continues to confound mainstream society when you live in a white-centered universe. 
I just wrote about, at the end of 2018, I wrote on my blog about the young wrestler who was forced to cut his dreadlocks off or forfeit his wrestling match. And it was one of the most read pieces on my blog. And it just infuriates me that we are still having this conversation. And it's not infuriating to me that you made this film and that it's had such great success. Of course, that doesn't infuriate me, but it almost surprises me that we are literally still having to educate the rest of society. But the point I really wanted to get at is a lot of people would think that what we're talking about is like a black versus white lack of knowledge. But the reality is that a lot of times the lack of knowledge is within the black community and can sometimes even the worst sense of isolation, discrimination, can be from within the community itself. Can you talk a little bit about the negative concepts that we can have about our hair can sometimes be from our own people? Yeah, I'm going to tell you a little story that happened last night. I called my aunt in Grenada, and I was telling her about some things that were happening with the movie, and she said, you know, your dad would have been so proud of you. He passed away when I was a kid, and, you know, you're just doing so great. She goes, your great aunt, on the other hand, wouldn't have gone for this. And I start cracking up. And um, my great aunt and uncle came to Brooklyn when they were pretty young. And they they passed. And that's how they survived. They passed for, like, Italian. And, you know, they were. she was talking about how they got their first brownstone in Brooklyn with a $10 down payment because they thought that they were Italians. On the actual brownstone, it said no N-words. Wow. No N-words. Wow. So passing and having straight hair and light skin was a matter of survival. It was a matter of survival. And so that's why I could laugh when she was like, your dad would have been proud, but your auntie, I don't know, uh, wouldn't have been. And I think that one of the things that's going to heal us in many ways, but certainly across the generations, is having compassion for the fact that every generation and everyone has a different battle to fight. You know, there was a reason why the hot comb was invented and hair relaxers were invented because of what was happening, you know, during Reconstruction. We had to assimilate, period, to survive. And we are in a different place now. And so I think that our generation can do differently. And I think what's really beautiful is that in the movie, we also see how people my age and younger are helping our parents and grandparents heal and go natural too. What I really like about the film is that even though you are documenting and explaining the oppression that has happened to Black hair over the years, you're also, there's a very clear celebration of black hair. And there's very clear narrative of people who have embraced their natural hair. And you um, interview plenty of people who share their own story of coming to terms with and then embracing and glorifying in their natural hair in present day. So I don't feel like this is a, a doom and gloom film at all. I really do think that this film can educate, but also inspire. I'm sure people are going to see this film, and if they're not natural already, will consider it and or consider like changing their mindset about what they believed to be true about 
black hair, whether they're black or white or Asian, whatever the case may be. But I just really appreciate how you have a really inspirational tone. I mean, that's what I came away with after watching the film. I wanted to ask you what the best part of making the film has been, both in terms of accolades and then also just for you personally, what you think you have done by making this film. I think the greatest part is watching this awakening that has been happening for decades continue to kind of flourish with people falling in love with themselves and realizing that there has been a very explicit con job done to us to, <laughs> yeah. you know, to get us yeah. to to not like aspects of ourselves and how we sort of dismantle that. And I think that's why the film really engages audiences that aren't Black, because it's been done to all of us in some sort of way. And I think that the way the movie is structured helps us to understand how we dismantle that, right? How we use our knowledge of history and society and structures to figure out what has been done to us and how to heal from that. Yeah, I think that's so perfectly said. And I'm actually just really excited to see how many places Back to Natural has shown up. I've just watched it and been so excited for you and for this film and for these audiences who are able to, you know, take this information and input it into their own like consciousness, whatever racial, cultural background they're coming from. So I have to ask now, as we come to the end of this interview, how are you wearing your hair now? <laughs> I am wearing my hair out. I think it's an afro, but I had some people over the other day and I was like, do you like my afro? And they're like, well, it's not really an afro because I kind of blow it out. So it's not perfectly round, but it's sort of like poofy and flowy. But I like the sort of blown out kind of big natural hairstyle. That's what I'm, that's what I'm doing these days. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. And so where can people see the movie, Jillian? Where can they go see it now that I'm sure everybody's going to be you know, wanting to see it after listening to you talk about it? Well, we could do another episode on the struggles of independent film. <laughs> um, that deserves its own episode. Right now, we are looking for distribution. So right now, we are doing group Engagement. So if you have a school or an organization or a group of people that wants to see the film, definitely reach out to us, backtonaturaldoc.com. Doc is D-O-C, backtonaturaldoc.com. And reach out or email me at connect at backtonaturaldoc.com. And we can put together a screening. But hopefully we will have a distribution deal soon where people can just watch from their homes. But, you know, we're working on that. And what's next for you? You started out telling us you were working at Barnard and just dipping your toe into being an independent filmmaker. So what's next for Jillian? So I left Barnard, actually, in June because there was so much travel. I couldn't miss work and I was missing. I missed the screening in Ghana and I missed the screening in Amsterdam. You know, I miss a lot of screenings that I really had wished that I could go to and opportunities to kind of... I do workshops actually with the film about sort of racial identity and healing and really customized to organizations. And, you know, it was just heartbreaking to miss out on those opportunities. And so I took the leap. I left in June to really pursue this advocacy work 
on a more full-time basis, not full-time. I'm actually starting a private practice, really offering my services in Harlem because I think that we need more clinicians of color. We need more Black clinicians and we need them in Black neighborhoods. So I'm doing that too. Are you going to be making any more films? I did start production on a new film about healers, about people who are reconnecting to sort of ancestral ways of healing and sort of new modern ways of healing that work with Black populations, populations of color. Because I think, as we know, traditional hospitals, medical centers aren't really meeting our needs. You know, Black women, for example, have much higher rates of maternal mortality. A lot of people of color are afraid to engage in the medical system for a lot of different reasons, including in mental health. And so I want to really shed the light on the people who are providing services and healing in ways that feel really connected to our spirits. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Where are you in that process? <laughs> I am in the beginning. Um, I actually was in Grenada for most of December learning Reiki from a group of people that spread Reiki all around the Eastern Caribbean. So now I'm a Reiki practitioner and started filming and meeting different types of healers. But I am not going to do what I did on my last film, which is completely finance the film by myself with some Indiegogo supporters. And so... We are also looking for partners for that. So really kind of starting a whole new chapter of my life and and we'll see. I think that's so exciting that black hair has given you a whole new life. (laughs) It has. I went natural and my whole life has changed. You should try it. Everyone should try it, you know. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much, Jillian, for being on My American Melting Pot. Thank you so much for having me. It's amazing to talk and connect again. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. But true confession, I could talk about black hair forever. But watching Back to Natural and seeing the global response to this film makes me think I'm not alone. Lots of people want to talk about black hair. And I'm really glad Jillian took that leap and made this film. Now more people can understand the significance of black hair and see their identities and their personal stories validated on the big screen. And I'm not saying this because I was in the film, and I'm not just saying this because Jillian was on the podcast. I'm really sincere when I say that I wish that everybody could get a chance to see this film. So if you do have a chance to see Back to Natural, by all means, take advantage. Then we can keep this conversation going. Thank you for listening to Episode 7 of My American Melting Pot. If you learned something new about black hair, I'd love to hear about it. You can tweet me at Lori Tharps or leave a message on the blog, myamericanmeltingpot.com. The blog is also where you'll find the show notes for this episode. And I'll have links to the Back to Natural website and screening schedule, as well as some additional resources about black hair if you want to continue this conversation or continue your education about this fascinating topic. Now, our next and final episode of season one doesn't come out for two more weeks. But that doesn't mean that you have to go without Melting Pot content. If you visit MyAmericanMeltingPot.com, you'll find fresh new content every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Or you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, where I also post Melting Pot goodness. I love hearing your thoughts and comments about the show as well. 
I also love ratings and reviews because they help more people find the podcast. So leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 7 of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia, where some people have black hair and some people don't. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty, Tyler McClure, and Paul Marchesani. Our PR and marketing intern is Darian Muka, and our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening to My American Melting Pot, and remember to always live your life in color.